At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. In a culture growing in hostility, it's clear how far we are from what the kingdom of God should look like. As followers of Christ, it can be difficult to stand firm in what we are taught and what we believe in. It's easy to let idols slip into our lives without us even realizing it, especially when the world we live in puts people on a pedestal. In our new series, Daniel, The Clash of Cultures, we'll be looking at the life of Daniel and how even then Daniel had to navigate a culture who opposed God. We'll discover how we can put our trust in God regardless of our circumstances and how God is sovereign over all. Join us this new year as we study the life of Daniel and learn how to apply the truths inside this book to our own lives. Friends, we live in a society that prioritizes access to information about famous people, people that we look up to. We want information about their lives, the ins and the outs. We sadly crave the juicy gossip. And the media knows our penchant for this information. And they deliver it. It used to be, when I was a, just a kid, it seemed to be just the tabloids that you'd see in the grocery checkout aisle or maybe hidden somewhere on your grandmother's coffee table. But now it's all over the place, isn't it? 24-hour news cycle, social media, websites, blogs, it's all over the place. They know we want it, we're hungry for it, and they give it to us. It's particularly true when a famous person has a spectacular and public failure. Think of a celebrity. I'm not going to suggest a name. Think of a celebrity, whether it's a, an athlete, an actor, a, an anchor, an entrepreneur, an elected official. Think of someone whose life has unraveled in a significant and public way, and how, when this occurs, it plays out in public opinion. Usually, it starts with a, an expose by a journalist who picks up the story and, and then other news media picks up on it. And then there's talk around the proverbial water cooler. As people say, oh, can you believe that? They rehash all the details. What do you think of that? And then the employer or the sponsor or other people cut off the professional relationship. That's the cancel culture. They can't represent our brand anymore after doing something like that. And at least in the case of uh, famous people, the way ahead is usually some type of a, a marketing plan. A publicist is brought in, a PR firm. Notwithstanding the fact that the person is probably living through just a cacophony of turmoil in their soul. Who am I? What's my identity? What's happened? They're living that while the world around talks and a PR firm is brought in. And uh, probably they do some coaching and then it turns into a press tour and they get booked on a morning show. We've got a studio here to help us to picture it a little bit this morning. They do a sit-down interview to be aired in prime time or to show up in a magazine that people would want to read or pay attention to. 
And I'll be honest, sometimes when I've watched these interviews, when I've read these articles, I say, do they really mean what they say? Is this just all a setup? Is this just the PR firm that's trying to like figure out how to get them back to where they were? Do they really mean what they say? Hmm. Why are we talking about this in a sermon at church? Well, today we encounter a unique twist in the true stories that we've been exploring in the book of Daniel. I'll get to it in a minute. But Daniel is an Old Testament Jewish prophet. And he's retelling the story uh, that actually begins with God's people's unfaithfulness and disobedience, which led, God had given them plenty of warnings that if you love me first and most, if you follow me, if you keep yourself separate from the pagan nations around you, I'll protect you. I mean, I will just pour out blessing. And they did that sometimes. But there was always this warning that if you turn your back on me, if you disobey me, I will pour out judgment upon you. And God used an empire called Babylon to pour out his judgment on his people. And in Daniel chapter 1, we heard that there were a whole bunch of people, Jews, who were exiled, taken from their homeland and brought to Babylon particularly the royal family and people of influence and all of these special people that were so important to the Jewish nation, all these influential people. They were brought into this pagan nation, this pagan culture. And it's fair to say that these Jews were faced with a clash of cultures, which is actually what we've coined the name of this teaching series. Sometimes we, who belong to the kingdom of God, experience a clash of cultures in a world that is not the kingdom of God. But it's fair to say that there was a lot of tension that these Jews faced between assimilating to the culture that they were now in and maintaining their identity as God's people. And I think we can appreciate some of that tension as well. And so we followed the stories of a handful of Jews. Some of them we know by name. Daniel we know by name, and he's the one narrating this. But there's a few others. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? We've heard some of these stories about them, and we know some of what they did and the pressure that they faced and how they persevered, how they faithfully trusted God. There's another real-life character that we've been following who's been woven through the true stories, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. What have we learned about him? Well, I mean, God used him to punish the Jews, and he brought the Jews to his city, and he tried to indoctrinate them. But some of the youth, despite his best efforts, refused. But because he actually found them to be 10 times smarter and better after their refusal, Because he found them to be better than even his own experts, he promoted them. Isn't it amazing that unbeknownst to the king, God was using him to elevate righteousness and goodness and godliness in a pagan empire? That's so cool. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a prophetic dream. And he called in his experts, his spiritual advisors, and he said, tell me the dream and make sense of it. And you know what? They couldn't. But there was one Jew, Daniel, who could. God gave him insight and ability, and he was able to do it. 
And as a result, God promoted Daniel through the king. He gave him honor and power and wealth. And Nebuchadnezzar said, truly, your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, a revealer of mysteries, for you've been able to reveal this mystery. In chapter 3, last week, we saw the king set up this giant golden image, and he commanded everyone to worship it. But some of these Jews were faithful to God. They said, well, we can't worship this image. They refused. The king, who clearly had an anger problem, punished them, but he couldn't kill them. He tried, but God spared them. And then that got them promoted by the same king, and he gave them a blessing all in one fell swoop. And here's what Nebuchadnezzar said, blessed be the God of these Jews. He, go, he went on to, to make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will, shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid in ruin. This is a violent guy. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. So I got to be honest, when I read the true story of Nebuchadnezzar, it's almost like watching ping pong. It's like back and forth and back and forth. He tries something and then he praises God and he's evil and then he's, it's just the back and forth. Learn our ways so that you can become like us. Except you're actually much better than us. You're 10 times better than us. I'm the all-powerful king who thinks myself a god. No, no, actually your god is the god of gods. Worship who I am. Worship what I've done because I'm like no other, except there is no other God like God. Yikes. You see it? This back and forth? Well, today we encounter another piece of the potentate's puzzle is what I'm calling it. How do we understand Nebuchadnezzar? How do we understand what God wants us to know? He's still king. He's still arrogant. He's still powerful, full of himself. But the twist in this story is that it's first person. It's almost like Nebuchadnezzar is sitting down for an in-person interview saying, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you my experience. Everything else Daniel has been narrating up to this point and continuing on in the rest of the book. This one chapter is first person from Nebuchadnezzar. And there is something here that God, through this vassal king wants us to know. Beware the pride of kings and humble yourself before the true king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar would have a reason or two to think himself pretty great. In case you don't know a whole lot about Babylonian history, here's a couple things to help you. His empire and the capital city of Babylon was one of the greatest, if not the greatest kingdom to have existed to any point in history at this point. The prophet Isaiah called Babylon the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans. The apostle John later in Revelation called it Babylon the Great. Historians say that he's one of the most successful kings known to history. He defeated other empires. He ended their reign and he held on to his own reign for 40 years, which is pretty significant. He especially left a legacy for the way he beautified the city of Babylon. You've heard of maybe one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It wasn't just beautiful, but it was fortified. This is interesting. It's estimated that 164 million bricks were used for building some type of an outside wall to defend Babylon. 
And very tellingly, do you know what King Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar had printed on many of these bricks? Provided by King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of bricks printed and communicated. The king is saying, I did this. I accomplished this. I made this possible. I deserve credit. And he's communicating to his subjects, you better humble yourself before me. You better give me the praise. I'm the king. So he wasn't just a great leader. He was an arrogant leader. He was swollen with pride and self-congratulation. Nebuchadnezzar had some things to say in his personal expose. In these sit-down interviews, are they real? Does he mean what he says? I don't know. I don't know if it's a publicity stunt. Let's give him a fair shake. Let's see what he says. Verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar begins by wanting something to be known, not just among his people, the whole earth, all peoples on the earth. There is a Most High God. He does signs and wonders. He is the true and everlasting king, not me. Now, this feels like a total about face from everything we've heard about Nebuchadnezzar and that we've heard him say the last few chapters. This is completely the opposite. Why? Why does he begin this autobiographical story this way? What happened to him? What did he experience that would so change his perspective? It's astonishing what he is saying. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is the king. Yahweh is worthy of praise. So what led to this response? I'm going to tell it a little bit in Nebuchadnezzar's words because of the length of verses this morning. Allow me to summarize. In verse 4, he is living the good life. It says that he is at ease, he's prospering, he's on top. He's just doing great, no cares in the world, until his contentment was interrupted by a dream. This was not a weird dream after having bad sushi last night. This was not a weird dream after watching a, a sci-fi movie. This was a divine dream. And it was a dream that caused him fear and dread and confusion. What was it? God was warning him of his pride. Now, per usual, he brought in his chief advisors, his spiritual gurus, and he said, help me out here, guys. Tell me the dream. What does it mean? Eh, no good. No help. Never are. But Daniel was called in. Daniel, the... Chief of the magicians, he's called in verses 8 and 9. And Nebuchadnezzar says, 
Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. Here's the dream. The king told Daniel about a great tree that grew up, that reached very high up into heaven, and it was very large. It was abundant and flourishing. So great and strong was it, and so expansive was it, that animals came and found protection and found sustenance. It was almost across the whole earth. But a heavenly angel called for that tree to be destroyed, to be cut down, chopped down, all of the foliage stripped away, all the fruit scattered. And what would happen? The animals have no safety. They have no protection. They have no sustenance. And so the animals would leave. And all that would be left is just a stump in its roots. And so that it would not grow up again, it was to be bound with iron and bronze to keep it from growing. And if that wasn't weird enough, Nebuchadnezzar heard a voice no longer talking about a tree, but talking about a person, not named, but described as he. And this person would undergo a pretty significant transformation from being a man to becoming like a beast. And this man-beast would live where animals live, would eat the way animals eat, would lose his mental capacities as a human being. And all of this would last for a very long time. And he was given the purpose for the dream. This is what the king said in verse 17. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Daniel hears it. What's Daniel's response? Alarm. The text says that Daniel was dismayed for a while. And he shared the king's fear. The king sensed this. Poor Daniel. He had this job, once again, of being the very person who had to deliver the bad news to a very bad guy who had a temper and was known for violence. Poor guy. The king said, don't let it alarm you. You could almost think of Nebuchadnezzar saying like, just give it to me straight. Don't let it bother you. Come on, just give it to me. Except Daniel had really good reason. What he was about to share would confirm both the king's and Daniel's fear. You know what he said? Oh, king, the dream is you. The tree is you. You have grown strong and great and influential. Babylon, just is, it, it covers the whole world at that time. It's so expansive. However, God has declared that your kingdom is going to be taken away from you. Your vitality, your mind, your glory, all of it, it's going to be gone. And you're going to become like a wild animal. And it's going to stay that way until you know, verse 25, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. There it is again. Daniel, as a true prophet, 
delivered a warning. But he also appealed to the king to reform. Perhaps, perhaps, O king, God will avert this judgment. In verse 27, he, he's crying out, O king, break off your sins. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. It was a warning and an appeal. Now, warnings are a good thing. They can be a very good thing. About three weeks ago, we learned of an airliner in Oregon that lost its door at 16,000 feet because some part was missing or malfunctioned. Can you imagine being on that plane and all of a sudden there is a hole in the side of the plane? What a harrowing experience for the crew and the passengers on board. Sorry if you're afraid of flying. Now, I'm not saying I have any inside scoop, but there's a whole lot of people who are now asking who knew what, what did they know, what did they overlook, what are the maintenance records, what are the suppliers and the manufacturers, are they culpable? So there's a whole bunch of investigations and all that stuff that's going to come out. We've got to let it play out. But it has been confirmed that there were some warning lights on that particular plane in the days leading up, consecutively, in the days leading up to that flight. So we'll see. Warnings, particularly on airliners and our vehicles, can be a very helpful thing. I would suggest to you that warnings that come directly from God are even more helpful. And in fact, I would call them a gift. I would call them a gift. It is a gift that Nebuchadnezzar was given a direct and divine warning about his pride. It's a gift that he had clarity. Let's think about us for a minute and divine warnings that come our way. It's a gift that we have scripture because all through it are divine warnings and, and it's helpful for us to know how we're to live, particularly as the people of God. The Apostle Paul makes it pretty clear naturally what the human self is like in Romans 3. There's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. No fear of God before their eyes. That's like baseline where we start. Thankfully, the New Testament does make it clear that change is possible. And when we are redeemed, when we are saved, God begins a work of renewal in our life and we're given a whole bunch of gifts. But one of the most important gifts is the gift of his presence, that the spirit of the living God is given to us. And the indwelling spirit of God works to point us toward what is true and works to convict us and remind us and prompt us. And that, friends, is a gift for the saints. So I wonder, how are you cultivating the voice of the Spirit louder than the voices in your head, louder than the voices in the world around us? I would suggest to you that there are some practices that can help. Practices like silence. And solitude. 
and listening prayer and fasting. I mean, these are things that we want to lean into even this week. These things can uh, actually be the things that tune our mind and our body into the presence of God, that can be conduits for the Spirit to guide us and to warn us and to correct us and affirm and also to love us. That's a gift. I wonder, who have you invited into your inner life to know what's really going on? That kind of a friend can be a gift. But I know, and probably you do too, since the Garden of Eden, humankind has been pretty adept at knowing how to hide, how to cover up, how to speak and live and believe things that are just not true. And so it's a gift when you have someone that you can speak plainly with and receive the truth of the gospel in return, because that's what we need. I don't need good advice. I need the gospel. A couple of days ago, it was on Friday, went to the mailbox, and I had two letters, and one of them was from a friend. I never get two personal letters in one day. It was like, thank you, God, you see me. And I opened one of the letters, and it was from an old friend of mine, and he was telling me about a conversation we had two years ago, and I vividly remember that conversation. We were having coffee. He was wrestling through a major career decision. And I was sharing some things in love. I love him and I care about him. And so he told me in the letter, he referred to my counsel as a warning. Interesting. I don't think I called it a warning at that time. But he, was a, he said it was a gentle warning. It was trying to help him to know if he moved forward, how he would navigate this, how he would be able to do this well. And so he was thanking God for the warning and the clarity. Interesting that I'd be preaching on this a couple of days later. That was the word of God from Daniel to the king. A word of warning a word of reformation. Please, O king, please repent. Please turn up from your ways, from your sinful ways. And you know what, friends? The call is the same to us millennia later. The experience of repentance is one that you ideally experience repeatedly. It's not just a one and done at the moment of salvation. We talked about this in the men's breakfast a little over a week ago, that the the, the presence of repentance is an ongoing thing. It is a practice that we do as we remove ourselves from the throne of our lives and resubmit to the Lordship of Christ. As we change our mind and our behavior to align with the mind of Christ and the way that Jesus has invited us to walk. But what happens when we don't respond to these warnings? Well, guess what? It didn't go so well for Nebuchadnezzar, who was judged for his sins. Let me pick it up in verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power, as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? 
while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Nebuchadnezzar did not respond to God's warning, the call for humility and reform. Now, a dream like that, he's probably not going to forget it two days later, like we do. I can't remember what I dreamt a couple of nights ago. This would have stuck with him, but apparently not long enough. Because a year later, a year later, he had, he had forgotten it. Or he had ignored it. He had a very, and we have, a very short memory and even less willpower. So here he is a year later filled with bravado and confidence and hubris. Look at me. Look at my kingdom, my Babylon, my power, my majesty. I did this. I accomplished this. Aren't I great? I deserve credit. And at that precise moment, while the words still in his mouth, the word of judgment fell from heaven. And that dream, that nightmare became a reality. It was fulfilled. His kingdom was taken from him. He was driven to be like a beast. He lost his mind. He lost his kingdom. By the way, did you notice when I read these that it was not Nebuchadnezzar who was speaking? Did you see that? It was narrated. And I find that interesting that this whole part is Nebuchadnezzar's own story, his own words, except for this. It may be because he was so mentally unable to even put thoughts together or recount what happened to him that somebody else had to narrate it. Isn't that amazing? Nebuchadnezzar's plight reminds me of something that I read by Dallas Willard where he was talking about the soul's lostness. It's a long quote. Let me put it up on the screen. It's long, but it's worth it. To be lost means to be self-obsessed to mistake one's own person for God. Such a person really does think he is in charge of his life, though to manage it, he may have to bow outwardly to this or that person or power, but he is in charge, he believes. And he has no confidence in the one who really is God. Willard goes on to say, we should seriously inquire if to live in a world permeated with God and the knowledge of God is something we truly desire. If not, we can be assured that God will excuse us from his presence. In this case, we have become people so locked into our own self-worship and denial of God that we cannot want God. We cannot want God to be God. That is a weighty, Reality. 
that when one is caught up so much in their sin and so much in their self-focusedness that they don't heed God's warning. And he has warned throughout Scripture that if there is no change of heart, judgment will come. And he is right and he is just to punish. God keeps his promises that destruction is coming for those who refuse to bow the knee to him. I'm reminded last May and June, we spent some weeks looking at the last chapters of the book of Revelation. Do you remember? And yes, all things are going to be made new. Praise God for that. But we had to look straight into the face of the reality that will come for those people who do not bow the knee to Christ, who ultimately reject God and what is their coming reality. Now, trust me, I get that something like this doesn't really fly well in our culture. Nobody wants to hear this kind of speak. And if we're totally honest, even us in the church, we'd rather just skip over this and get to the grace and forgiveness, which is real. It's real. But this is hard to sit in. At least it is for me. Don't miss the fact that God is not neutral toward arrogance. He's not neutral toward sin. Twice in the New Testament, 1 Peter 5 and James 4, it says, God resists the proud. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not like we, like Nebuchadnezzar, don't hear God's warning. We often are just complacent to it. We just choose to ignore it, to rebel. And friends, the sobering message from Daniel 4 is a call to repent, to trust in God's mercy before it's too late, before judgment comes. Nebuchadnezzar's story, though, tells us, thankfully, that if we do repent, if we heed God's warning, judgment can be averted. God will restore us by his grace. Look at what Nebuchadnezzar says. He's speaking again. In verse 34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. What did it take for Nebuchadnezzar to be restored? Lifting his eyes to heaven. A simple gesture of humility, of recognizing who is the ultimate king. He acknowledged the true king. Maybe that's all he could do in his state of mind. But it was enough. God saw his heart. It was enough for God to restore him. And he goes on, look at the rest of verse 34. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He is speaking about himself there too. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Once a narcissistic, violent, vile king, he was humbled and he relented of his pride. 
And so God extended kindness. And Nebuchadnezzar restored both to his sanity and his kingdom restored in praise. And verse 36 shows us that Nebuchadnezzar's glory and his splendor and the loyalty of his subjects returned. And not just, hey, it's back. It actually was greater than before. That's God pouring out grace. And I love that Nebuchadnezzar ends where he began. Remember the, the, the beginning verses? It's like the book ends. Full of praise, full of honor for the king of heaven. It's like Nebuchadnezzar saying, let me tell you my story. My story is living proof that God is great, that God is king. The most high rules over men. He gives kingdoms to whoever he will. He is the one in charge. My story is a story that says those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so, thus concludes the interview of Nebuchadnezzar. That infamous king of the Babylonian Empire. We've heard it directly from him in a dramatic turn of heart and fortune. Now, I said before, when I hear things like this, sometimes I can't help but wonder, is it legit? Did he mean it? Was it really a lasting change of heart? Did they follow through? Here's a question I wrestled with this week. Will I meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven someday? And the candid fact is, we don't know. Because scripture is now silent on the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's days. Next week, when we reconvene here, we're going to meet his son who ruled after him. We don't know the rest of his story. We don't have assurance that he really put his faith and trust in the Most High. The fact remains, though, that you and I can be assured of this. We can be assured that when we genuinely come in humility to an awesome, holy, all-powerful God, he longs to restore us by his grace. The heart of God for humble sinners is so kind, so full of grace. The hope is that we all face some ugly, true facts from the life of Nebuchadnezzar. We see a little bit of our story in his story, don't we? That we hear, just like Daniel appealed to that king, that we would also turn toward God in humility. And so, as we close, why don't you just imagine you're sitting in this seat again? Imagine that you were being interviewed. And just for fun, nothing weird, why don't you close your eyes? Because I have a few questions that I want to ask that maybe in the quietness of your own mind and heart, maybe you would answer these questions. And how would you answer them? Do you have any Nebuchadnezzar-like arrogance in your life? Do you ever look down on a coworker? Put your needs ahead of that of your spouse? 
Are you unwilling to acknowledge weakness to your friends? Are you resistant to the gospel's call for repentance in some area of your life? Are you convinced that you're superior to other people? Or that you're always right? Are you living as if you're in control of your life? That you should receive credit for building your little mini kingdom because of your skills, your abilities, your money, your self-sufficiency? Oh, friends, that's the water we live in today. Guess that old king isn't the only one who may have a pride issue, huh? Let me paraphrase something profound that C.S. Lewis wrote on pride. It is the one vice of which no one is free of. Of which everyone loathes when we see it in another person in which hardly anyone imagines that they are guilty of themselves. A moment ago, I shared the verse of Scripture that said, God resists the proud. But let me finish that promise. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Three times in Scripture, Proverbs, James, 1 Peter. God gives grace to the humble. How? By humbling yourself before the true king, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate and the eternal king. And though he is forever worthy of worship, though he is the name above all names and the highest of all, he demonstrated servant-hearted humility. He condescended by becoming a human coming to earth, sacrificing himself, laying down his life so that very prideful people like you and me can have life. And so, have you experienced this grace? And I wonder, what will be your lasting story? Spirit of the living God, we need your help to make sense of all of this. This morning I was um, just wrestling through these words that Jesus spoke in Matthew 7 where he said that there will be some people who say, Lord, Lord, look at what we did in your name. Look at all these things that we did. And Jesus, I confess, I don't know what to totally do with that. There are only certain people who call you Lord. And yet the fact is, your words in response were, I don't know you. I pray that we would have a healthy fear of you. That we would understand the weight and the reality of our brokenness. That we would bow our knee in humility, acknowledging, boy, we need you. And your way is better. It just is better. And so help us. Help us, please, to see anew the opportunity that 
while you resist the proud, you do give grace. And we see that in full display at Calvary. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, thanks so much for showing us the truest and best way of sacrifice, of humility, of love, costly love. Thank you for giving your life for us so that we could have life. We're pretty wretched apart from you. But you called us into a truer and better life and you've given us yourself and a new identity. And so we receive that even as we continue to work through this in our hearts and our minds. Point us to Jesus and what he's done. Thank you for the cross. For your beautiful name I pray, amen. Why don't you stand with us and sing. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.